everyone. Uh, so this session is focused on PMCF and PMPF, but I'm thinking the audience may not care to hear about PMPF considering today's announcement. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, I think they care very much or they should care probably more than they thought they needed to care. Because I think the speculation was the date of applicability, update of application would be delayed, and it wasn't. So in the proposal that was published today on the MDCG um, guidance page, it delays the transition of when you need your new certif certifications for your class A, B, C, and D devices if they require notified body involvement, but it does not change the date of application, which is May of 2022, and all of your post-market surveillance needs to be in place at that point. So you probably need to care more than you thought you were going to have to care. <laughs> Good clarification. On the plus side, it does mean that there's a longer runway if manufacturers are finding that they do need to generate that performance evaluation evidence to support their certification. They've got longer to generate that evidence, but still they need to get going now because there really wasn't enough time before that announcement. And now, there is time, but it's not masses and masses. It's it's enough possibly. You still need to get going. Okay, so we'll get right into it. Uh, the first question is one that we receive a lot. How do we do continuous PMCF and PMPF, which is what's required, since it's really just a snapshot in time? So how often do we take that snapshot? And where do we document the frequency? You know, how does that work? Amy, we'll start with you. Well, I think you need to have, um, basically you need to have a good plan and you need to think of it, it is a life cycle approach. So you've got various parts of the process, each one feeds into the next. So you might think of it as starting with through the design process and you've got your risk evaluation and your outputs from that, which then feeds into your clinical evaluation or performance evaluation planning. And then that feeds into your, you know, your evaluation of the state of the art, your clinical evidence, which then feeds into your post-market surveillance plan. And then the outputs of that feed back into your risk management and your clinical or performance evaluation. So if you're looking at it as a cycle that's continuously ongoing, you can then align it with your post-market surveillance cycle and make sure that you're just keeping that update as you go through that, that cycle. Um, I think... Um... I think it depends on the activities as well. So there's two articles in the NDR uh, that particularly deal with this issue. One is Article 83 that talks about uh, post-market surveillance and it says that uh, they should be proportionate to the risk class and appropriate to the type of the device. And there's also Article 85 that's talking about uh, it should be updated when necessary. So when you take those two, that creates a little bit of ambiguity to the manufacturers because it doesn't really specify you know, it doesn't give a rule about the frequency. Um, so for some, for example, class three devices, many manufacturers, I think, may overuse physician surveys, and they may end up, for example, with physician fatigue if they were trying to do this on an annual basis, because how much information can you get within a year? Um, so eventually you will get with, um, you will end up with poor physician compliance. On the other hand, um, just to give an example uh, of a coronary eluding stent. So this is a class three device. It should be monitored continuously in order to get safety signals. Um, this particular device initially got the certification and then instead of doing something annually, they decided three years later to do a study. But cleverly enough, it changed the population, the enrollment criteria 
of the population, and they actually found a high risk of myocardial infarction and possible stem thrombosis. So even though they didn't do it like on a yearly basis, I think that particular study provided them with enough information, the information they needed. So, so Andrew, sorry, I think it's interesting you say that because I think for higher risk devices, a lot of times people think they need to re-execute those surveys annually. And it sounds like what you're saying, that's not necessarily the case, that you can have a, a frequency of surveying the doctors uh, at a longer time period than maybe what your CERs are updated or your your uh, PMS documentation. Is that? Yes, that's what I was getting at. Just because for a class two, you'd have to update on a yearly basis doesn't mean that you have to do a yearly survey with the same exact questions, trying to find exactly the same information just to tick a box. Okay. So Nancy, what would you want the take-home message to be for manufacturers? It, I think, right, the take-home is it's more complicated than it used to be, and it's going to take you longer. So I'm very used to in the regulatory world, like my renewal is due or my submission is due on this date. So I back that up a couple months and then I try and get that done. It, you can't wait until six weeks before your submission is due to work on the, these continuous activities. You're, you're never mm -hmm. going to get it done and into the notified body in that time frame. Um, so I think reworking your schedule and understanding that it's not a submission-based update, it's a, an ongoing activity and making it part of your daily routine is, is important. Okay, so now we'll pick on Andrew since he's the freshest out of the notified body. Uh, what is the importance of the device lifetime when thinking about PMCF? Like, what's the notified body perspective on this and what's so unclear to manufacturers? Yeah, so I think it depends on, on the, the device again. So we're saying a lot of depends, but unfortunately that's how real life is. There's no, I don't think there's a rule. So if we think about devices in general, you could categorize them in four big categories. So one would be something that you use very uh, temporarily, for example, you're using a catheter to deploy a stent. So you just have the duration of use there as the lifetime. Then when you want to replace a function in the body, for example, your, your joint has gone, you need a new replacement, that would be the implant goes there and unless there's a specific reason to be removed, then it would be for the entire life of the patient. Um, then you have some other devices like that emit, for example, radiation. Um, so you implant them and then they continue to emit. So you have the actual uh, use and then the, the period depends on how long it will take for that radiation, for example, to be absorbed. And then you have some devices which are very temporary, for example, an extent fixation, fixator on the bone or a suture. Uh, the lifetime there is very temporary, really, until these things get absorbed or removed. So you could start thinking about therapeutic or post-therapeutic lifetimes, in a sense. I think it's probably also interesting to put it into the context of clinical benefit, because I think in the MDR, clinical benefit is highlighted much more explicitly than it was under MDD. And so if you think about it in terms of how long is the clinical benefit of the use of a device expected to intend, that would also impact your follow-up. So to give an example, you might have a novel kind of instrument, say an ablation catheter, for example, that's used for, to achieve a particular outcome. 
although it's only used transiently, you might think the device lifetime is transient, but if the benefit of that intervention is supposed to be two years, five years, whatever, whatever the state of the art is showing you that that, that outcome would be achieved, then you need to follow it up over that time period to see how well does this intervention compare in terms of the risks and benefits against other available treatment options. And then you have, just to put in another complicating factor, you can have devices that um, achieve their intended clinical benefit within a, a, a short period, like say if you've got a, a fusion device, perhaps fusion is achieved in six months. If it's stable, maybe you can feel fairly confident that the outcomes will be maintained. And you've got to think about, well, what are the outcomes that we're looking at and how long do we need to, 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 to monitor oh. that? Yeah, sorry, yes, my brain stopped working. So you, so you might say, well, the, the functional performance of that implant is, is only doing something for three or six months, but actually, again, the intended clinical benefits are longer than that, so you might need to think about your length of follow-up in that case. I think the other area people struggle with is sometimes the capital equipment. So you put it out there, but then you change the software or it's an imaging ultrasound and you change the wands. So all these features change on the device over its use, or you've got IVD and the equipment is out there, but you do new assays that then get run on that old equipment. And I think people struggle, like I, I haven't made that equipment in years, but it's still in use and it's still being used with new other ancillary devices. And so, maintaining the post-market and deciding what do I need to do, even though I'm not making any more of this device, but it's still in the market, it's still being used, and I still have responsibilities for it. So knowing that I've got to do that post-market work. So would if, I don't know, Andrew and, and Amy, would it be, I think a lot of people wonder with permanent implants, is the device lifetime forever? Um, and it sounds like <clears throat> you would have to, monitor the safety of and performance of the device as long as it's in people but as far as like clinical data to support the lifetime it might be based on something else like how long it's expected to last in the patient how long healing is expected to occur is that true it's interesting <laughs> oh. sorry go ahead andrew no that's that's another argument for example the spinal fusion devices uh, as you're saying, after some time, for example, a year, the, the, the screws basically, you have bone around them. So if fusion happened, you're not achieving anything more from the devices themselves. There could be an argument that this could be the beneficial endpoint. Um, and that's again, the lifetime you're proving, right? Maybe that's the lifetime you're proving. So this is an argument. Then again, you don't know what will happen to these devices if they stay long enough on a patient's body. So when they disintegrate, would that cause problems? We do know the, about the hip, uh, hip on hip metal um, uh, events. So the way I've seen some manufacturers kind of overcome that is they actually have slightly different um, activities that they do for the various time points that you're expected to last. So they might have some more clinical study type data for that 
time you're expected for it to function and what's a typical follow-up on a study. So let's say it's two years for a fusion device. But then since you do know they're still in patients, they're still using it and it could be there could be problems that occur later. They might use like a registry or some other form of, or you could potentially look at some types of surveys to look at, you know, longer time points, but not necessarily the high cost clinical studies. Sorry, Amy, I cut you. No, 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 because I was thinking that the other sort of things <clears throat> like they do have a functional, like, like the functional lifetime is the lifetime of the patient. And I was thinking, I, I used to have some debates with some of my um, former colleagues because it's very common to think of the lifetime of a hip replacement as being 10 years. So you're looking for follow-up to 10 years. And this kind of follows on from usage. But my point was always, you're not going to want to replace the hip at 10 years just because 10 years has expired. So the, the lifetime of the implant is the lifetime of the patient. But maybe what we can say is that 10-year data is a surrogate endpoint for lifetime performance. And you can extrapolate what you think lifetime performance is based on what your 10-year data looks like. And maybe that's the way to look at it. For some of these permanent implants, there could be a time point which isn't the lifetime of the patient, but from which, based on what you see in the state of the art, you can extrapolate long-term performance and say, we're confident you're going to get good long-term performance if you get good performance and clinical benefit at time points X, Y, and Z. I have a related audience question. Uh, he says, I see that most of the examples are for devices with a longer device lifetime. What about AI-based software devices, which have a lifetime of one to three years? And I think that's going to depend on how long the intended clinical benefit, how long, what is, what is the thing supposed to do and what's the benefit associated with doing it and how long would that benefit be achieved? And also what are the risks with it? And what is the time period over which the risks might be experienced? So I think you always have to bring it back to what the device is intended to do and what the risks of doing that are. Yeah, I think it's a lot easier if you have a device with a short lifetime and a short clinical benefit, right? I'm getting a yes, no answer on an IVD. I do think that makes post-market clinical follow-up easier in that regard, because it's easier to track the patients. It's easier to track the outcome and you're done at a certain point. Another audience question, tying back to our first one, I believe, when we were talking about continuous PMCF and PMPF. Um, talking about IVD, it is not mandatory, but rather appropriate in case the PMPF data shows the need for it, right? What's not mandatory? I'm assuming he's talking about continuous PMPF, or is he talking about how frequent you take your snapshots? That wouldn't be my interpretation. I would have thought for both regulations, you do have to have continuous PMPF or, PM, or PMCF under, under uh, MDR. Um, there was an interpretation under MDR. I gather there's been a different interpretation for IVDR that all devices under MDR require a PMCF plan, regardless of whether they actually need a PMCF study. We've been hearing noises though that the interpretation, which we thought would follow the MDR interpretation, is going the other way. And they're saying, no, you can justify not having a PMPF plan. So is that is that perhaps the question he's asking? Yeah, yeah and I would say Go ahead, Nancy. Yeah, we have seen that. We have, you know, helped clients get their certificate under the IVDR without providing a PMPF plan. We did include in the post-market surveillance plan a justification for why additional activities weren't necessary. 
Um, you know, it, it's still always a little hairy and why it always makes me a little nervous when we start down the justification path. Um, but we have seen it work in some cases. It's Not in every case, but in yeah. some cases. I would have interpreted the MDR just the same way, but Team NB got together and debated it. And because the word said shall in Annex 14, they were like, no, you have to have a plan. And in the plan, you can justify having no study, even though in Annex 3, it can it, it basically implies in Annex 3 that you don't necessarily have to have a plan. So, yeah, anyway, that's a side. <laughs> that's a side. We're getting out. lots of questions on Lifetime. Next one, what is the best practice to estimate the lifetime for class one manual surgical instruments? So I think this is going to depend on what the device is, is intended to do. If it's a, a generic surgical instrument, it's the kind of thing that's been around for decades. It's something that a surgeon uses routinely. Um, I think you could think of the light because it's not having a specialized clinical effect. It's not got a specific, it's not treating a specific clinical condition, for example. Then you could be looking just at procedural. The device lifetime would be, I guess, um, procedural and also, I guess, the, the maintenance side of things. But if you've got an instrument that is specialized to perform a particular intervention, but you couldn't perform without that particular instrument and no, none are particularly coming to my mind at the moment all the ones i'm thinking of are at class 2b and class 3 but say there was one and it was the only thing you could use to get this particular outcome then again i think you'd have to be looking at like length of follow-up as related to the intended duration of the clinical benefit of the intervention yeah i, think I oh sorry i got a nice yeah, one of the things I've done in my past, like if you had a loaner set of instruments that are going out and coming back and being serviced, is really trying to simulate that use. And so soiling them, running them through sterilization, doing all those activities, accelerated from a bench test and then examining for those critical parameters of that instrument is how basically justified the lifetime of those devices, knowing what the life cycle is and how many times they get out, go out and get used in a year, um, and then projecting that to when you're gonna start to see some of that failure, the handles breaking, corrosion being evident on it, um, and doing it more that way as opposed to in the clinical setting. Here's another good audience question related. Testing states that the lifetime of our device is 10 years. Are we required to maintain current updated risk management documents such as the risk management reports? I'd be interested to know what the device is. Because again, I'm thinking, is it really 10 years or is it, one of, or is it a permanent implant? And I think then if it's a permanent implant, the, the dialogue that we had previously about permanent implants versus something where you say the lifetime is 10 years, but you're not going to take it out of the patient in 10 years time still applies. It's a yeah. cardinal health. What would that device be? That could be a lot of devices. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll see if, we, if this person yeah. wants to chime back in and, and specify the device. Okay, next yeah, question. But I would think you would keep your risk files for that lifetime of the device. Maybe the frequency at which you update it or change it goes down if you're not manufacturing any more of them, but I would maintain those files. Okay. Yeah, if you have to keep your 
post-market surveillance files up to date in that scenario, you would also have to with your risk management because they go hand in hand, right? So I would think it would be hard to do post-market surveillance without keeping up the risk file. Okay, so we're gonna move off of lifetime. Um, how are notified body reviews or questions on the PMCF plans impacting CERs? Um, what do you think? Okay. But real quick, I think um, originally when MDR was published, the philosophy around CERs was very different and maybe the need to specify the measurable outcomes for the product or the clinical endpoints with acceptance thresholds wasn't um, you know, just wasn't well understood or thought through. So sometimes the mentality of like trying to like hide the data or not clearly stratify wasn't done. So then when you take a CER written in that style and try and do PMCF, it's very complicated because you don't know what is the objective of the study? What is your clinical endpoint? What is your acceptance criteria? So if the CER wasn't written with the PMCF in mind, then you have to kind of go back and figure all those things out. And so I think, you know, being on the PMCF activity end of things, I'm often finding like that's been the struggle is helping manufacturers identify those things. And a lot of legacy products are, it's hard to come up with the um, and clear endpoint or, or clinical outcome. Um, so that's also part of the challenge. So Andrew, now notify body perspective. What are you saying yeah. at the notify body related to CER and PMCF misalignment? I guess. Um, what we saw many times, at least on my end, was a lack of consideration of a decent statistical plan incorporated into the PMCF plan. So the manufacturers, you know, they had a good product, they had some data, um, then they decided to do a follow-up for whatever reason they thought it is appropriate, but they did not take into consideration how they would prove what they want to prove. So the lack of that appropriate statistical consideration was a major red flag when we reviewed these. I think there was so, uh, a probably, there's probably an element of kind of death flight by excessive templating or maybe adherence to templating too, too rigidly because you'll often see a sort of standard conclusion, which is all the endpoints and objectives have been met, there's no need for PMCF. But then when you actually look at the evidence, as we've been saying, they didn't specify what they were trying to demonstrate. They didn't analyze the data against those, those objectives that didn't exist. So how can you conclude that you've met your objectives if you didn't know what your objectives were? Nancy, have you seen issues with manufacturers? seen findings yeah. related to this? It, we have seen a finding and it really related to how they interacted and how they were, it, it became, I think to Amy's point and, and to Andrew's point that when they looked at them in total, they didn't align. And so the question was, which is feeding which and how are they feeding each other um, and how are they linked? So that we have seen that come back as, you know, we needed to address that gap. It's really important. I mean, that's, that's a really common finding in the notified body. There's no correlation between the CER outputs 
and the PMCF plan. And that's critical because that should be driving the PMCF plan. What does your clinical evidence look like? Where are your residual risks? And then that drives the design of your PMCF study or your overall PMS plan. I know this is yeah. a hot topic for, for John. John, how have you been recommending to manufacturers to overcome that misalignment between PMCF and CERs? Well, I, I think like there's sometimes a little bit of like confusion, particularly between the two different groups. So usually you have the person writing the CER, but then you have other people doing the PMCF plans and reports. And so oftentimes they'll look at the CER and typically the conclusion within the CER is that there's sufficient information to demonstrate conformity to the GSPRs or the essential requirements. But that doesn't, and there's usually justifications that, you know, everything looks good. But that doesn't mean there's not any gaps that need to follow up with with PMCF. And so I think that's where it's important for another group of people or, you know, the writer. And this is what happens when we usually do it together is our PMCF team will look at the, okay, we compile summary and it's that you summarize the easy for the PMCF team to really look at and see where their gaps are, where there might need additional follow-up needed. And then both of them working together to say, okay, here's the gaps. Let's work together to close these, but you have to position them appropriately where you're still demonstrating conformity. Everything still looks good, but we still, there's still some things we're in and you need to work together to come up with that. Oh, sorry, John, you're, you're, you're breaking up a bit. So um, oh, sorry. I thought you'd start speaking. For that. But I was going to say, you've used the magic word gap. So just to you know, be clear, there can't be any genuine gaps. There can't be any areas where you cannot, you don't have sufficient clinical evidence. There might be areas where the evidence is, is weak or where you're let, uh, relying on extrapolations or, or justifications. So there may not be explicit clinical data, but there always must be one way or another sufficient evidence to demonstrate that you're safety, performance, and clinical benefit, your risk-benefit profile is, is, uh, meets the requirements. And then what we, we're always very careful about using the word gaps in the notified body, because if you put that in your forms in the notified body and the competent authority picked it up, you get, you get dinged, you get a non-conformity because it's like, why did you approve this device when there's a gap in the clinical evidence? You're not supposed to approve things where there's gaps. So we were always very careful not to refer to gaps. They were, areas where they were relying on justifications, where they were relying on data extrapolations, where they were relying on state-of-the-art. And look here, there's these justifications and they marry beautifully to their PMCF plan where they're addressing all those things that aren't gaps at all. <laughs> yeah, like I've recently, can you guys hear me? Am I breaking yeah, up? Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so I've recently kind of been working on some uh, CERs and we basically used equivalents where there was a lot of data on one of the four devices, but not so much on the other ones. And therefore you're using equivalents. You say all, all, if not all or most of the data is on this one device. Therefore the PMCF team should push back and say, well, we should be doing something to collect data on those other devices where there's less data. And, and then the other aspect is there was certain ways in which the device was used that seemed like a little bit higher as far as our outcomes, but we could justify it because there, it was only an isolated study and there was reasons that it was okay. But that still doesn't mean you shouldn't maybe look for that particular type of usage in your PMCF to say, yes, we're right, that was just an isolated study and this is 
why we believe it's still acceptable. And so mm -hmm. I think the, the key is actually doing that work and really understanding that, yes, this is why we're doing this PMCF, because the problem is when the notified body reviews your CERs, they pick it apart and find all these gaps. And then they say, why aren't you doing PMCF? And therefore, I think it's best instead of just putting a blanket statement saying we don't need anything further because there's no gaps, really think about it, because I think it just makes things easier in the long run and it shortens your duration cycle for your reviews and makes the reviews just easier in general. John, I think that's a good challenge. The, I think part of the uh, compounding factor is right now a lot of manufacturers are in a rush and so they're either doing PMCF plans concurrently with their CER or trying to do the activity at the same time as the CER. Um, and so then it's like, okay, we need the endpoints, the acceptance criteria. We need to know what the objective is. Like for that, say it's a survey or, you know, like sometimes the struggle is even identifying, are we asking healthcare practitioners, the patient themselves or doing a chart review, right? And we don't even know what's the most appropriate source of the data we need to collect for that CER because we haven't gone through that thought process like in a logical way. So I think that's like the value of, of like a holistic approach with the team that's looking at a methodical manner making those decisions in the CER, like identifying what you were saying with four products and three maybe needed more data. Okay, then you take the concerns for those three in PMCF and you know all the decisions around the operations and logistics of your PMCF activity need to be stemming from CER and that strategy. Um, so I think that's one of the areas that we we really provide a lot of assistance for our clients um, we're going to round back to the previous question really quick the device with the lifetime of 10 years asking about risk management is a stent does that impact anybody's answer does she have to keep risk management documentation updated for 10 years on a stent i think the answer is yes <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, yeah, I know yeah. it sounds silly, but <laughs> yes, I think the answer, you have to have all that documentation updated. To Nancy's point, maybe your frequency isn't like, um, and the mm -hmm. activities you're doing might be slightly different, but you should keep it up to date. Okay, we're going to move on to PMCF planning. There are a bunch of audience questions on it. Let's just start with one here first, though. I want to hear from Andrew. Now, what are the most common, you know, like interpretation issues or general PMCF planning issues that you were encountering in your reviews? Um, by far, I think the, the most common issue was the misinterpretation or the differences between the directive and the regulation. And the fact that uh, we have, this device has been out for 20 years and it's safe and effective and it's been proven and we do not need to collect any data at all. So that'd be one. Another point is for um, uh, US-based manufacturers, sometimes they will miss, they would think just because something has been proven by the FDA, it automatically applies in the EU region. And I'm afraid this is not necessarily the case, although you can extrapolate data from uh, a study that you present in the FDA, a good study, and you can 
presented in the EU, it doesn't mean just because something was approved there, it automatically gets approved in the EU region. Any other findings that we haven't covered? I, I think the one thing to keep in mind is you have to have the appropriate documentation, meaning you have to have the, a proper protocol, you should have a proper report and all that supporting documentation. And if you need ethics committee approval or IRB approval, all those communications need to be provided for you to actually use that to support the safety and performance of your device. And so I, I think a lot of times people don't appreciate that fact. So make sure you keep your documentation looking good and that you have all the appropriate things in place. Yeah. I think it's also a struggle to get the budget and the and the resources to do these studies because you know oh we've had it on the market for 20 years we're not going to spend that kind of money to get that data and so i think for the people that are trying to fill those and do those submissions and write those cers and pmcf plans you know they really have an uphill battle to convince leadership that they need to spend that those resources to do it it's a, it's a good point because that argument about, oh, come on, it's been on the market for 20 years. Everybody knows this device is safe. But one of the drivers behind the MDR was there was a number of high profile device failures. The clinical community became very um, upset about this. And that drove the changes in the regulations because they're saying, well, what is the evidence? What is the evidence behind this device that I use as a, as a surgeon and now my patients have died as a result? And they didn't want to take it for granted anymore that just because something had been on the market for a long time, that it was necessarily safe. And the other side of that is they may not be concerned the device is unsafe, but it might not be as good as other available treatment options or other similar devices. We found with the reclassifications of hips, knees and shoulders, when we started requiring manufacturers to get, gather good quality evidence on those devices, we did discover that a lot of them were significantly underperforming and getting much worse results than other devices with exactly the same intended purpose. So you can't just take it for granted that because something's been on the market for a long time and it hasn't had massive failures or complaints or whatever or low sales, that it's necessarily as good as other other options. So you need the evidence, I think, is the short version. <laughs> yeah, and, sorry. And and the, sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. Go ahead, uh, Amy, to your point, the longer you follow up a device, you may start seeing deterioration performance to the point where if you follow them with a conservative, for example, versus a conservative treatment, after 10 years, it may just be exactly the same whether you had an operation or not. So the clinical outcomes may be exactly the same. Let's see, uh, audience question. Is there any kind of standard template that is expected to be used for reporting on PMCF, PSER, et cetera, and post-market surveillance under the MDR? There's the DCG 2020-8 for PMCF report. Uh, we're still waiting on that PCER guidance. <laughs> so yep. by the end of the yeah. year, right? That's the target. <laughs> I think the target um, is actually March this year, or is it April? <laughs> so we're gonna have to go back in time to get that guidance. <laughs> the 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 next one I think maybe Amy or Andrew already answered. Is the PMPF plan and report as a standalone document required if there are no findings or gaps? So basically, could you justify not having a plan? Under MDR, no. That was and that was a 
that was a team NB interpretation. It was, it, I have to, I keep saying this, I didn't agree with that because I thought you read Annex 3 and it says you can justify not having PMCF, but the team NB interpretation was that because Annex 14 says you shall document a plan, that what it meant in Annex 3 was that you didn't necessarily have to have a PMCF study regardless. So that was the interpretation under team NB. They may shift in that opinion, but then, as I said, what we're hearing under IVDR is that they haven't taken that interpretation. They haven't followed the MDR model, and they are saying that you could have no PMPF plan. And, and the one moment. thing to, to note with the PMCF, like under the uh, MDR, there's two elements. There's the general methods and the specific methods. And so I think, Amy, right, the Team NB said, you always need a PMCF plan because you're always going to have general methods of PMCF, but you might not always have specific methods. And I think the current, what we're hearing with IVDR is if you don't have any specific methods, you don't do a PMPF plan. I think even under MDR, BSI's interpretation initially was as long as you meet all the requirements in Annex 3 and Annex 14, you don't have to have two separate documents. You just need to meet all the requirements. I don't know what, how other notified bodies were interpreting it based on the team and B saying you always have to have a PMCF plan. But yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, yeah. Arin's question, how do you avoid redundant information like already present in the PMS plan and PSER as an example? Well, I think that's why they, like that's why I think that IBDR interpretation is more sensible because it does avoid that, um, you know, repetitive information. But I think you just have to basically have summaries in one and have a primary data source where you have most of the information in like another document. You just need to decide which one is going to be your primary source and which ones are just going to have that summary information. And again, what Celeste mentioned earlier about the holistic approach of the team when they write the documents, that's important because if they come all together and they say, where's the information for that? And then they say, well, it's in the CR in this part. Okay, so we don't have to repeat it over there and just have redundant information. It makes it makes reading much easier for the clinical reviewer to notify body and therefore less likely for them to ask questions. We have a lot of audience questions. Next one. Here's one for Celeste. When designing a PMCF, is it permissible to ask questions about an aggregate of patients or should it be one patient per data record? Um, so I'm assuming this is about asking a healthcare practitioner um, about their general experience with the use of a device like collectively of you know many patients. Um, I'd say it's kind of an opinion question and maybe not a very high quality data, right? It's kind of low quality data and it's really hard to pinpoint a clinical, like to design a question really addressing a clinical endpoint when you set it up like that. So if you have um, a healthcare practitioner filling out patient charts and they're able to collect like, you know, one patient um, like response per question, it does make more sense and you can really confirm that you're very specifically patient by patient answering the clinical endpoint. Um, so it's slightly different survey designs, um, but we can, there's a lot of conditional formatting that can be done in surveys to really ensure that you're asking the right questions um, at the right point in the survey, whether it's to the HCP themselves or about the patient chart. 
Well, here's a unique question from the audience. Can you speak to how well-established technology in MDCG 2020-6 is being leveraged to reduce the extent of PMCF activities and how this approach is being viewed by the notified bodies? We've also received feedback that notified bodies are interpreting this guidance and approach differently. Can you comment on this notified body disagreement? Yes. Yes, we can. So uh, we gather that one of the competent authorities didn't agree with MDCG 2020-6. And so they had been directing not all of their notified bodies, but at least one of their notified bodies to disregard the guidance center. So the advantage of what's in MDCG 2020-6 is it acknowledges that via Article 61.8, there are other devices that are well-established technology that aren't the exempted devices that are listed in Article 54.2 and Article 61.6b. And by saying these are well-established technologies, what the guidance was trying to do is make an argument for accepting other forms of data because there's not particularly necessarily value in doing a prospective clinical study for a low-risk device with a really well-established safety profile that's been around for decades, it's known to have a clinical benefit, et cetera, et cetera, just to meet that apparent guidance. So the, that we gather now that disagreement has been resolved and that particular competent authority has changed their opinion and they now accept MDCG 2020-6. So hopefully we should see more consistency in the notified body interpretation there. Um, to the original question, I think the, the benefit of, of that is um, that it enables you to have a, a, a fuller um, rationale for why you are meeting all your safety, performance, clinical benefit um, endpoints, because you can now extrapolate and accept data or use to some extent data from similar devices. You can justify using some forms of PMS data. You can justify using some kind of non-clinical evidence via that, that appendix in 2020-6. And the stronger your rationale is, the more evidence points you have, the easier it is to justify a less comprehensive PMCF plan because you're saying, look, there's all this evidence out there. We can therefore rely, we can rely more on some of the general methods and less on the specific methods. Or if we do need specific methods, they don't need to be like, you know, um, uh, on, the, on the level of a, a randomized controlled trial, we could be doing perhaps uh, user surveys or other, um, other um, my brain is definitely not working today, proactive is the word I was looking for, other proactive methods to, to maintain that data collection. Okay, let's, uh, before we run out of time, I'd like to cover surveys a little bit because we have some audience questions on that. Um, so with surveys being like the popular choice, especially for legacy devices, start with Celeste, what challenges are you seeing in the surveys written by manufacturers? I'd say primarily like not having clinically meaningful questions or you know wanting to do like that general experience style of survey. It's more like marketing activity um, rather than really like getting down to like either is it patient reported outcomes or data from patient charts that de demonstrate the clinical performance and safety. Um, so that's one thing. And then sample size is a big one in the statistical analysis behind how you determine sample size, how you are setting the acceptance criteria. Um, so those are big things. And then maybe um, within manufacturers, like the surveys are, are kind of a challenge because 
it needs to be a cross-functional activity, but because it's so new, the different functional areas are really struggling of like how to interact or maybe legal wants it super clean and kind of protected, right? Don't ask about off-label use, don't ask about, you know, like open fields for adverse events, right? But that's kind of a requirement for from MDR about like wanting to identify off-label use. And then regulatory would have another set of concerns and clinical another set. And so it's kind of like with this team really defining like, why are we doing this? What data are we looking for? And are we being like too stringent that we're not gonna get the data that we ultimately need? So I think it's really just the team identifying the intent of the activity and understanding like what risks maybe actually do need to be taken in some cases. So hopefully What's that's the helpful. the root of that, like often not happening? Um, honestly, I think it's that it's so new and people haven't, I mean, if you haven't conducted a survey to know what the data looks like on the back end, it can be scary. Um, we've seen um, clients have reduced like rounds of review, like only two rounds of review. They were able to provide um, survey data when the notified body asked questions. And so that helped reduce, you know, the only two rounds. Um, we've also had uh, manufacturers be able to keep an indication on the label and keep products on the market in the EU. That's an extensive saving. So like we see the really positive side, but for a manufacturer that's new to it, it's pretty scary. And so I think that's part of the problem. It is that like leap of faith. And it's probably the same thing for registries and clinical investigations. Um, but those are expensive and so most manufacturers aren't opting to do that so um on the other hand lisa i think that there is to a degree an over reliance to surveys especially to surveys to physicians and you know you could just use electronic or posting uh, surveys but then what manufacturers need to be thinking is how they're going to get their answers back and they're going to get their answers in time because the worst thing that can happen is that they just relied on one survey to a physician, 40% of them answered the time has come for the submission, a new application renewal, and they don't have that data, and that's bad. So don't just, you know, not one, all your baskets, or eggs in one basket, same basket, that's it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I think my, like, thoughts on surveys have definitely evolved over time as like we've done more and more of them. I used to initially think that it could be a quick and easy thing that you could put together and it would just be an easy way of gathering some data that you could use to say we're doing like proactive PMCF. Um, I've learned that it's not that easy. <laughs> and so oftentimes when you're doing general surveys where you're just asking general questions or opinions from the medical professionals, you won't get specific data on outcomes. What you'll get is opinions on things. And you can say 80% of people think this device reduces pain, which is valuable, but it's not actually showing that, you know, what the decrease in pain is for the patients and specific details about the outcomes. And so I think that it's definitely the patient-centered data is going to be your highest quality and your best. It's the hardest to collect, obviously. 
and then, but probably the most appropriate for the higher risk devices. And then the more general things like where you're asking the medical professionals about it is probably maybe more appropriate for the lower risk devices or where it's more, they're the users and they're the ones that would know more about the usage of the device and whether or not the thing is working. So like a surgical instrument, perhaps <laughs> a patient's not gonna know whether the surgical instrument's working and there might not be any specific outcomes directly related to the what the patient experiences, but the doctor and the surgeon will will be able to provide you some input onto how well they're working. I don't know, Andrew, what do you think? Is that? No, no, I fully agree on that. Uh, on what you said, yeah, it, it all depends on, on the user and the intended user who's going to use the device. So some of the surveys would be good for, you know, focus on patients, some of them just on physicians, as you said. But always align them with your CER <laughs> and like try so that whenever you put the data in your clinical evaluation report, it actually is serving a purpose and fits in with the overall story. So related question. Let's say I choose to conduct user surveys for PMCF and the data comes back with some surprising results. Do I really have to update my CER, PER, risk management file, labeling, PCER, SSCP? You know, do I have to do all that? Yes, eventually, I'd say. I mean, so I think it depends on how bad it is, right? Like, if it's some, if you get negative feedback, you, before conducting the survey, should have a process in place of how you're going to handle that negative feedback. Uh, most manufacturers we work with on surveys have a procedure. They're going to feed those that negative feedback through their complaint management process. The following year of data trending and PCER writing, they'll assess that data and then report on it in the PCER. But I mean, it'll still appear in the survey report. Um, but when it comes to making those updates to the risk management file, labeling, et cetera, I think ultimately, if you can't prove that the device can meet its acceptance criteria or why maybe it was set wrong, you probably do have to do those updates. Yeah, I think a lot of times that um, like CERs are often not looking at one, like the focus is not on one specific aspect of one specific thing. So whenever you do a survey and you find a particular result that you might say, that's not quite what we are expecting, it might require you actually to do a little bit of more deeper dive into that particular aspect, meaning you do a specific literature search to understand really what, if it's an adverse event you might've observed, what's the real rates? Like, yeah, we looked at it in the CR, but we didn't really focus on that one. We did a more general search. And so you really are looking at maybe finding out more specific detail, details on that aspect. And so it might require you to, to dig deeper, or you might just have to update your risk management and, and, and really look at it that way too, if it's already covered in your clinical evaluation report. Uh, one audience-related question, what is the, oh, I'm sorry, uh, do we have to generate qualitative or quantitative surveys? Celeste, you want it? You're not, we can't hear you. <laughs> sorry, I was trying to make a joke, but um, I, I think it definitely, to be clinically meaningful, it needs to be uh, quantitative. Right. And that's, I think, the early struggle with PMCF surveys is that they were all qualitative, opinion based, um, you know, asking general information about performance of the product. And uh, that's 
if, if you are powering it and doing a sample size calculation and then basing it on a clinical endpoint, it's going to be quantitative data. Okay, we are way over time. So I'm really sorry to any questions that we didn't get to. We'll definitely need a part two of this session because we had a lot more questions planned ourselves and we didn't get to some audience questions. So please uh, stay tuned. We'll come back in a month and do some more.